Today we are continuing to consider the theme of redemption as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus in this series called Redemption. Today we're considering redemption as God's merciful gift. This week as I was pondering gift, gift giving, and gift receiving, I was, I was thinking about the complexities of husbands giving gifts to their wives. And I know if you're a husband, you know what I'm talking about. But it's not always so clear-cut when it comes to giving your wife a gift. And so, for example, if you're not married, this is free advice. Take notes, okay? Don't give your wife anything that plugs in. If it takes electricity, no bueno. No good. Because it's utilitarian. She needs that. So that's not a good gift. Also, don't buy her jewelry. That's just not a good idea. Because the, the kind of jewelry that you can afford... She doesn't want. <laughs> and, 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 and the kind that you might consider buying, you know, it, it's just not going to pass the test. And so when it comes to jewelry, it, it, just let her pick it out herself, all right? Amen, sisters in the room? All right. Next, when you're buying her clothing, that's really risky. I mean, you're rolling those dice when you buy your wife clothes because usually there's a little number attached to clothing called the size. And usually guys don't even know what this is. And then they start looking at the dress or top or whatever and trying to guesstimate. And if you, if you get a size that's, you know, potentially too big, then she's going to say, what do you think? I don't wear that size. Or but if you underestimate, oh, well, I'll go with the smaller size. You still lose. Because then she says, I haven't worn a size 8 in 10 years. And so either way, it, it's just not helpful. And so I would, I would steer clear of all things that are apparel or jewelry. Just let her pick it out. You know, that is just let her tell you what she wants. It really, I've learned, is much more helpful. Even though it can be kind of tricky sometimes when, when giving gifts, and not just ladies, because some guys are the same. They have everything. Well, what do you get a guy that has everything kind of thing? Um, but thankfully, we have a father in heaven who is not confused. And it's not tricky for him. God knows exactly what we need when we need it. And he knows that the exact gifts that we need, and first and foremost, the primary gift that all of us need is the gift of salvation. It's the gift of his Grace, which is purely his mercy, and he gives us these gifts because he is good. And so today, as we consider God's merciful gift of salvation, we're going to be reading through Exodus chapters 13 and 14. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there, and I'll remind you where we've been the last several weeks working through the book of Exodus. We, we have learned that God's people were enslaved by the evil king Pharaoh of Egypt, and they were afflicted and miserable and suffering by these taskmasters. And they cried out to their God, and God heard them because he loves them. So he raised up a man named Moses to redeem, to liberate them. And we saw last week that through mighty acts of judgment, culminating with the Passover, where God struck dead the firstborn of all the Egyptians, showing his absolute holiness, and yet his mercy in providing a Passover lamb for his people. 
they were let go. They had the exodus, the, the departure of slavery in Egypt. And so they have left. We looked at that last week, how God accomplished that. Let's continue reading in Exodus 13, verses 17, and we'll also read chapter 14 to keep getting a, a sense of this remarkable story of God's redemption. Exodus 13, 7 says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. and You should carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, turn back and encamp in front of Eth-Harioth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the, in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and it will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea, by Pharaoh in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when they have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and a darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course, and the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall on, on them on the right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Amen. What an absolutely glorious display of God's sovereign power and wisdom and absolute glory. Crossing the Red Sea marked freedom for the Israelites that had been in slavery. But we must remember the context in order for this to make sense. The Israelites we saw last week were just as sinful as the Egyptians, just as human, just as idolatrous, just as sinful. And God showed them great mercy in saving them by providing a substitute, a flawless lamb to die in the place of the sinful Israelites and judging the evil, just as sinful Egyptians who did not have a lamb who died for them. So for God's people, the Lamb paid the redemption price to free them from their slavery. And so we see here they're free at last, free from their oppressors. They now have this new life. And this ultimately points to Jesus, who on the cross, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, who was perfect, never sinned. The 
flawless, unblemished Lamb of God died on the cross for me and for you, representing us on the cross, paying the price so that we can have freedom from our sin. That is what the book of Exodus is about. Let me give you the main idea for this text, and let's talk about how it applies to you and me today. So the main idea for this text is that God will never abandon his redeemed. We have this for certain. We see it clearly in this text, that God will never abandon his redeemed. Our redemption is secure. We will not go back into slavery. We know that much for sure. But for you and me today, as we just read this this part of the story, the question is, okay, well, I, I believe that, But how does it apply to me? How does this impact my life as a husband or as a mother or as a teacher or as an engineer or as whatever you do for a living? How does it impact your daily life? Because indeed it must. This is not just information. It's not a history lesson. This is about redemption and it's about us living for Christ. And so there are three realities. There could be many more, but I just picked the three main groupings here. There are three realities in this text that show us how this applies. And so it tells us what redemption means for us today. Three realities. Number one, our redemption means that we have complete acceptance. So the first thing we see here is that we have complete acceptance by God because of our redemption. The Israelites left Egypt Remember, before they were, they were delivered from their slavery, they were suffering. They had pain and were afflicted. And God heard their cry. And he moved to rescue them. Why? Why did God do that? Because they were his children. We read it in Exodus 4 a few weeks ago. When Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, You let my son go so that he can come serve me. And so God saw the Israelites as his children. This is about relationship, a father who wants to be close to his children. He accepted them. We also see it here as they left, as they left Egypt and they're in the wilderness. God provided something for them. We read a pillar of cloud, which served as shade from the intense sun in the desert. But it wasn't just shade, it was moving, and it was leading them. And so God was leading his people through this cloud. But then that night, they had a pillar of fire, which was for light and for warmth and still to guide and to lead them. And so this is showing God's care and his concern, his love for his children. But it's more than that. This was God's presence. He was right there with them. It says God went before them and it did not depart from them. And so we see God's presence. He's right there with his people leading them to where they should go. And he did it personally. He didn't send someone else. God himself did it. So he accepted them. But why? Why why did God accept them? Is it Is it because the Israelites were so impressive? Is it it because the Israelites were very intelligent or had a lot of education? 
Is it because the Israelites maybe proved to God that they were worthy of his affections? Did they do anything that would merit God's love for them? No. They didn't earn it. There was nothing they did. The Israelites were the object where, where what God loved. And so they were the object of God's affections just honestly because he loved them. And so God loved them because he loves them. And God loves you simply because he loves you. Not because of anything that you do that could possibly earn his affections. This is very significant for us to understand. Because there's nothing so bad that I could do that could make God stop loving me. There's nothing bad that you can do to make God stop him from loving you. There's nothing you can do that's so good that will make God love you more. Nothing. He loves you. He accepts you completely. But some of you here in this room, I know have a hard time with this. A room this size, I guarantee you there are several people, if not more, that have a hard time with this truth that God accepts you, that he loves you, that he really likes you, that he delights in you. It was interesting. I just met someone this morning, a first-time guest, and I was like, so what do you think about meeting in a zoo? And she said, this is awesome. This is just an hour ago. She says, everyone worships, including the animals. And I says, amen, sister, you're right. Even the animals Worship God. Now, not the way you and I do, because they're not made in his image, and of course they can't relate the way we can. But animals were made for God's pleasure. When an animal does what it does, it's glorifying God. And when you do what you do, you are glorifying God, and you were made to know him and to enjoy him. You were made to worship. And so God delights in you. He enjoys you. There is nothing that you can do to make him love you more. But here's the thing you have to understand. If you're having feelings of not being worthy, then if I'm honest with you, you're right. We're not. We're not worthy. We can't earn it. We're not worthy of God's affection or of his favor. We're not. But that's the whole point of the gospel. That Jesus came, died on the cross, and he paid the price, and he earned it. What we could never do, he did for us. And so, yes, we are not worthy, but Jesus is, and he offers us forgiveness because he died in our place. That's the whole point. That's why we gather on Friday mornings, because we are the ones that admit we're not good enough. We need Jesus. That's why he came, to save to seek and to save those who are lost. And so this morning, I really mean this. Please, please stop trying to earn God's favor. Please stop running ragged. Please stop trying your your attempts at being holy and trying to do things to earn God's favor. You don't need to. Jesus accomplished it for you. All you have to do is trust him. All you have to do is just rest in knowing that Jesus loves you and died for you, and there is nothing sweeter 
than understanding this. There is nothing sweeter than knowing and enjoying Jesus. Nothing. The other things that you would turn to for joy are going to leave you empty. But if you will give your life to Christ, I can guarantee you that you will experience this sweetness. That when you read his word and the spirit inside that lives in you, you can commune with him. And as you spend time meditating on it and praying and singing his praises, and I sing terribly, and yet I still do it because I can't help myself. We all praise what we love. And there is nothing sweeter than knowing and enjoying Jesus, having his presence, knowing that he approves of you because Jesus earned it for you. So this is a call for us to rest and to trust him. You see, what you have here is a a foreshadowing of what we have in full measure. God using this pillar of cloud and fire to lead them points to now the Holy Spirit. He's not a cloud above us. He's inside of us, leading us. And we have his presence and his approval. And that's all you need for joy. If you have God's presence and his approval, you will have joy. If you don't have those, then you will not have joy. We have his approval. We have his acceptance because of our redemption. Number two, our redemption means that we have constant protection. So we have complete acceptance and constant protection. Israelites were led by God to the banks of the Red Sea. Now, for this to make sense to you, you have to understand, for an ancient Near Easterner, what did it mean to be by the sea? What was the sea? How did they view it? Well, if you read in Genesis 1, verse 2, at creation, it says that God's Spirit was hovering above the waters. This is highly poetic language, but it's describing the sea as being chaotic. So the ancient people would rarely go out past the coast. That wasn't until much later because it was terrifying. And they didn't know where you would go out on the ocean. And they didn't have things like radar or sonar or GPS. And, and, and there was a lot to so be learned about using the stars and so forth. And so the ancient people would see the sea as a place of chaos and of death. And it was terrifying, which is why you see God hovering over the waters This imagery poetically describing God as creating something good and orderly with no chaos in it whatsoever. And so whenever God leads them to the side, to the banks of the Red Sea, and they stop there and they see this ocean in front of them, their first thoughts were, okay, good one, God. Thanks a lot. We could have gone that way. I saw the exit. But you didn't take us over there. Instead, you took us next to the ocean, next to this sea, this chaos and terrifying, and there's no way to pass. Have you ever felt that way? Especially when you read verse 15. When you read verse 15, it says, go forward. That's significant. God is telling them to go forward. And why is that so significant? Because they have just reached the Red Sea, this place of chaos and confusion for them. And then, all of a sudden, in the distance, they turn, and they see this big cloud. They're like, oh, what what is there? It's a cloud up top that's protecting, but then there's this cloud of dust that's heading towards them. And all of a sudden, they, they start to hear 
these terrifying sounds, these noises of, of, of metal clanging and of horses stomping on the desert floor, and they realize, oh my goodness, they're coming for us. And they see the enemy that's out for vengeance. And so on one side, they're trapped with this chaos, the Red Sea, and behind them, there's the enemy coming for them, and they lose it. They panic. God, what are you doing? How could you possibly have led us to this place of chaos, and now here's the enemy? But God is so gracious. He doesn't get angry at them. He's patient. He doesn't condemn them. He says, go forward. Into the chaos. Go forward into the sea. The thoughts were, how could we ever hope to overcome this situation? And then the enemy is breathing down their backs. And God says, go forward. Really? Are you serious? God, have you noticed that there's an ocean in front of us? That, by the way, that you led us to? We didn't have to come here, but you led us here. And now you're saying, go forward. Have you ever been in a situation where there is something in front of you that is chaotic and terrifying, and you sense God saying, go forward, and you say, I can't. I wish I could. I can't. I'm too weak. I'm too defeated. I'm too addicted. I can't. I can't, I can't go forward. There's just, this is just too big for me. This is just too much. How could I possibly overcome this? And then you turn your shoulder and you feel the enemy coming right at you and tempting you and threatening to take you back into slavery, back to Egypt, back to sinful patterns. You see, when we encounter things that are stressful, it is the time that the enemy is going to come right at you and attack you in the middle of that stress. In the middle of the chaos, the enemy's going to come up from behind, and he's going to scare you just like they freaked out the Israelites. And you're going to have the temptation to go back to Egypt and back to slavery and back to old ways of thinking and old habits that maybe God has delivered you from, threatening to go back to what you used to know, your old way of life. And God is saying, go forward. Have you ever been really terrified or maybe really ashamed of something or really tempted or depressed or emotionally or spiritually just drained? And you say, God, I don't know what to do because the enemy is coming and I just can't do it. The reality is that you can't. The Israelites could not part the Red Sea. They could not do it. This points to the gospel. We have to see how this points to the gospel. See, God made a way. He opened up the Red Sea that allowed the Israelites to cross through from slavery and death into new life. This is an image that's foreshadowing, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Crossing the Red Sea is a picture, a very important picture of walking through death 
and going through the impossible and reaching the other end with resurrected, with transformed new life. And Jesus did it for us. He did the impossible. He faced the enemy. He crossed the ultimate Red Sea, which is death. And he did it with victory on the cross. And what Satan meant for evil with Jesus crucified is the very thing that God used to defeat the enemy and to give his people freedom from their slavery to sin. And that's what you're seeing right here in the Exodus, pointing to that reality that we have at our disposal. Jesus crossed the Red Sea. He crossed death. And that gives us hope that we can follow in his footsteps. We can follow Jesus across death itself because one day we will die. But we will be resurrected by the power of God to live glorified lives forever with him in heaven. And so we have hope to face whatever chaos is in front of you and the enemy that's coming after you, it says that God will fight for you. You don't have to fight against him. You have to just trust in Jesus. That's what you do. You trust in Jesus. Not in yourself. Not in your abilities. Because you're not good enough. We're not. We're weak. We're human. But Jesus has a plan. No matter how difficult your situation is, you have to believe that Jesus has a good plan to display his glory through your situation as he parted the Red Sea in the ultimate sense. And now we have hope. We have protection. And so his redemption gives us complete acceptance and constant protection from the enemy. Lastly, as we close, our redemption gives us a changed life of acceptance, protection, and then a changed See, crossing the Red Sea is the ultimate spiritual reality that points to the gospel. That God provided a way for them to pass from slavery and death into new life on the other end. And so crossing the Red Sea is an image for crossing from death to life, which is exactly what baptism demonstrates, which is exactly what the gospel itself is. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, You have been spiritually resurrected. You are alive on the inside. You have been new, transformed, changed life. Remember what the Israelites saw washed up on the shore the next morning. What did they see? The Egyptians, the enemy, the oppressor, the taskmaster, dead on the shore. That is Satan and his minions, that is a fate that awaits them because I've read the book. I know how it ends. That's the fate of those that oppose God. Satan is going to be defeated. The Israelites were following God. The Egyptians were opposing God's purposes just like Satan opposes his purposes in us today. And so the Egyptians were being used by demonic forces unbeknownst to them. They were opposing God. And God defeated them. And you still have today demonic forces opposing God. But Jesus is victorious and he's given us this new life crossing over from slavery 
through death, resurrection spiritually, those that believe in Christ, and we have new life. And so we can live a life of purity. I didn't say perfection, but purity. And we can. Because we have the Holy Spirit, and he leads us, not on a pillar of cloud, but inside of us. Your sin has been nailed to the cross. Your shame nailed to the cross. Your depression nailed to the cross. Your addictions nailed to the cross. Your insecurity nailed to the cross. You have freedom and you have this opportunity to live a new life that pleases God. You say, yeah, but I still have struggles. Yes. The Israelites cross over new life, no more slavery, defeated enemy, and yet their backs were still wounded from their oppression. They were still carrying the wounds that were still fresh and hadn't healed yet. Yes, they were free, but they were not fully healed yet. And so we trust in God to continue to heal us because this life is like being in the wilderness. And not just Abu Dhabi, which is desert. I'm, I'm talking really being life is a wilderness. We're not in the promised land yet. We will one day be in the promised land when we get to heaven and we'll be with God. But this life is indeed a crossing over the Red Sea, carrying wounds, trusting in God, walking with Him, awaiting that day when we die and are resurrected and we cross the ultimate Jordan River, go into the promised land, and we will be with Christ forever in heaven. But we're not there yet. Our life is still in the wilderness carrying these wounds, trusting God who's freed us from slavery to continue to heal us. So we must turn to Christ and give him our burdens and commune with him. Chapter 15, which we won't read too long. Not enough time. It's time for lunch almost. But on your own time to read it, it's an amazing hymn that describes this amazing celebration, this intense celebration of God delivering them from slavery. I want to do one verse and then we'll close. Verse 13, chapter 15. It says, You have led in your steadfast love the people who you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. This is a prophecy. We've been redeemed. The day will come. We'll be in God's holy abode. We will live with God in a holy heaven. That will happen. Until then, we trust Christ. We trust in the Lamb who was our substitute to continue to heal us from our lingering wounds as we march towards the promised land. God loves you. How do I know? Jesus died for you. That's the evidence that he loves you. And if you will repent and believe in Jesus, turn to him, he'll change you. He'll give you this new life, this resurrected life that we're talking about. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for our great redemption. You please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, I thank you for giving us this opportunity, this absolute privilege to be with your people, to read your word and to remember that you love us. 
I thank you, Father, for your redemption that you purchased for us. I pray for anyone right now in this room who does not know you, someone that has never repented and believed in your gospel, who is spiritually right now dead. I pray that you would reveal yourself to him or her and that they would repent and believe in you and that they would be resurrected spiritually and experience this new life of knowing you, walking with you, having your presence, to know forgiveness. So I pray for those in this room that are grappling with that reality of their sinfulness and being lost. I pray for those, that, those of us that do know you, that would wholeheartedly give ourselves to you. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. If you have believed in Christ today for the first time, I would ask you please to mark that in the information card or get a new one from the back table and just mark that box. And I'll call you this week and we can talk. I can help you to grow. You put you in community with other people. Let's now stand together and praise God together.